Now, you follow in your copies of God's Word as I read the 17th chapter in its entirety. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Jareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it. And bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman and the the mistress of the home became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to, come to me to bring my son, to, my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the truth of the Lord in your mouth is that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, if, if, if there were ever an illustration of exactly what I'm trying to do with this new series that I launched last week, it's, it's to be found right here. Now, let me explain what I mean. The 16th chapter ends with a paragraph discussing and describing the most famous of all of the Amride kings. Now, if that term Amride is new, it's simply the descendants of Omri. The descendants of Omri, the Amride dynasty, that's all it is. Well, the uh, the most famous of the Amride dynasty was a guy by the name of Ahab. He was the most famous because he was the most wicked. And as if... There was proof needed as to his wickedness. 
This last paragraph of chapter 16 is describing Ahab and all of his wickedness, giving you examples of how wicked he was. In fact, in verse 30, it says, um, uh, he did more evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And then it gives you some examples. He went out and married a woman by the name of Jezebel, who was the daughter of Ethbaal, of the king of Sidonians. Um, by the way, that's the first time in the Old Testament that you see the word Baal, which is, of course, a false god. Then this happily married new young couple goes out and builds a sanctuary that's dedicated to the worship of Baal in Samaria, the capital city of Israel. Then they construct some Asherah poles. It's all in this paragraph. <laughs> they, they construct some Asherah poles, and Asherah is nothing more than that female consort of Baal. Then we get the statement in verse 33 um, that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel were before him. And then as the chapter closes, you get, um, you get a brief story about how uh, Ahab sanctioned Hiel to rebuild Jericho. Um, that was forbidden in the book of Joshua. And Hiel paid dearly for rebuilding Joshua. He lost his firstborn son as a result. As chapter 16 closes, it's a very dark, dark setting um, that is left behind at the end of chapter 16. The uh, calf-worshipping Baalists have all the cards. Yahweh seems to be on the run, or at least it appears that way. What, what on earth is there to be done? What possible solution could there, could there be? Uh, it, it, it seems that if something miraculous needs to happen, it does. On to that stage arrives Elijah the Tishbite, which is how chapter 17 opens. Elijah the Tishbite. A very mysterious origin, coming from absolute obscurity. Nothing is ever said about his mother, his father. His his arrival is shrouded in mystery, as will be his departure. His name, Elijah, means Yah is my God. Uh, Yahweh is just the shortened version of Yahweh. Yah is my God. It's as if the, the theme of his ministry is packed into his own name, that Yahweh is God and there is no other. He, um, he arrives on the scene as God's solution to this whole dilemma. He arrives to be the one who will say, Thus saith the Lord. Apparently, in the mind of God, the thing that this culture needed, the thing, this, uh, the, the culture of Ahab, was somebody who would stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. The most eminent of all the prophets. You you know, I think, that in Judaism today, in the Passover meal, the Seder, there is an empty chair in the Seder. You know, that's reserved for, don't you? That's reserved for Elijah. The most eminent of all the prophets is reserved to be brought into a time Where the great need of the hour is someone to stand and say, Thus 
saith the Lord. Guys, the, um, I, I hope you see my point. It's I'm simply saying that when things were couldn't have been darker in Israel, the solution that God thought was the primary solution is to raise up someone who would bring, who would speak, who would say things that God said he ought to say. It was uh, as if he was to speak words that were placed on his tongue by God. Martin Luther used to say that, that God lives in the mouth of the prophet. I don't know about that, but, but I can tell you this. The solution that God saw as the most needed, the remedy that he provides for a godless world is a prophet. It's not a fireworks display. It's not some kind of earthquake. No, it's someone who will stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. Nothing is more needed, apparently, at least from God's perspective. Nothing is more needed by this corrupt generation of of Elijah's than somebody to deliver a message from God. What I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm suggesting is that just like this culture needed somebody to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, so does ours. So does this godless culture. Somebody better stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. Oh yes, that can be done wrongly. It can be done stridently and judgmentally. That's, that's, that's inexcusable. But if there is any hope for this culture, ladies and gentlemen, somebody better rise up and say, thus saith the Lord. For this culture, it was Elijah. For our culture, who will it be? I suggest, ladies and gentlemen, that it's it's the assignment of the Christian church. It's our job, ladies and gentlemen, to stand up in the face of a godless culture and say, Thus saith the Lord. Through the prophetic ministry of Elijah, God says a whole lot to this culture. Now, what I want to do this morning is take a look at this event and several other events in the, in, in the coming weeks and find out whatever it was that Elijah said to this culture. And what I'm suggesting is that whatever he said to this culture is something that somebody ought to stand up and say to our culture. 
Somebody better say this same stuff to our culture if there is to be any hope. So that's what I want to show you. And out of this event, that of chapter 17, it's a, it's a rather lengthy event, kind of got two parts to it. But w- what I'm suggesting is that God is speaking to his culture or God is speaking to Elijah's culture through Elijah. By Elijah arriving on the scene simply to say, this is what God says. Somebody, somebody better stand up and say it again. I think I've told this story before, but years, well, it's not even a true story, but it's a, um, a story about a preacher who goes out to, um, to fish with one of his deacons on a Saturday afternoon and, and, um, they're having a great time and, um, but they're not catching anything towards the end of the day, they're about to give up. And finally the, uh, the preacher, the preacher, uh, snags a big one, they fight with it for a while and he, Pulls it into the boat and it's a big fish. Right as he's pulling it into the boat, the line snaps and he swims away. He turns to the deacon who is known for his very vulgar tongue. Turns to the deacon and he says, deacon, something ought to be said. Ladies and gentlemen, something needs to be said. Now, this is a long story between the, in the life of Elijah and Elisha where God supplies a message to prophets to speak to a godless culture. What I want to do in the next four months is find out what Elijah and Elisha says to this culture so that we can say it again. Now, in this event, I want to suggest to you there are three things that are, that are being communicated. I want to show them to you. First of all, the first thing that is being said by God through Elijah to this culture is simply this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. By the way, that was said in the Psalms. But basically, the first thing that Elijah has to say to his culture is that all of creation does God's bidding. Let me show you how he does that. First of all, guys, this whole drought thing that you see unfolding in this chapter, this is not simply about a drought for this reason. Elijah's first words in verse 1 and 2, his his opening salvo is a frontal assault on the gods of his culture because Baal was worshipped as the storm god. He was the God who controlled the weather, who brought um, the rains and fertility that staved off death for both people and the land. Elijah arrives there on the scene and says, there won't be another drop of rain on this earth until I say so. This is not about a drought. It's about this. Who runs this universe anyway? To whom does this earth belong? Baal? Is Baal the rain giver? No, he's not. 
I am. I'm the rain giver. And in his opening volley, folks, God defies the popular notion of how things work. He challenges the, the, the whole culture by saying, I'm the one that's in charge, not you. Boy, that's a man-sized lesson, isn't it? Um, but ladies and gentlemen, it seems to me that our culture doesn't understand that, does it? Do you think they do? And so the first, the first thing that somebody has to stand up and say is, the earth is the Lord's. And everything and everyone on it. Guys, um, what this drought is about is to demonstrate that, that Baal is not in control, nor is Buddha, nor is Allah, nor are you, nor am I. Only Jehovah stakes claim, or it is Jehovah who stakes claim to being the one who controls the heavens and the earth. And all of it, all of it does his bidding. And you see that throughout this story, not just the rain, folks. You see it, you see the same message throughout this whole story. For instance, um, God sends Elijah into the wilderness and he says, uh, listen, I know that you're going to go outside of Israel, but you go out there anyway because I've got to, I've got control of that too. And while you're out there, you'll drink from a brook and you'll be fed by ravens. Birds are going to deny their whole instinct and they're going to bring food to you. And then after that, uh, after that brook runs dry, I'm going to put you in a place where there's going to be a a pot of flour and a jug of oil, and none of it is going to run out. I am going to suspend nature. Because, Elijah, all of it, brooks, ravens, rain, a jug of oil and a, and a container of flour, that refuse to run dry, they all do my bidding. It's all under my control. In fact, about the only ones who balk at that whole idea is us. Guys, do you remember that book that, um, that Rick Warren wrote about 10 years ago now? I don't know how long it's been gone, but The, the Purpose Driven Life. Do you remember that book? It's a good book. I think it sold 40 million copies or something around the world. It's a good book. Still is, by the way. If you haven't read it, you can get one and read it. But those of you who read it, you remember how the book opens? The first line, the first sentence, the very first words, the very first five words. You know what they were? This is how he opens his book. It sold 40 million copies. It is not about.
that's something that Elijah would have said too. Guys, the lust for control, first of all, requires that you remove the presence of Yahweh from a culture. And your culture is determined to remove him. So that they can live with the myth, the irrational myth, that we're somehow in charge. And then we find that life doesn't make a whole lot of sense because we've started at the wrong place. And then the thing begins to fragment and unravel. And we are in the middle of that right now, ladies and gentlemen. Our culture is unraveling beneath us. The first message that Elijah has for his culture is, the earth is the Lord's and everything else in it. It all does his bidding. I'm a part of that creation. You're a part of that creation. And we are designed, ladies and gentlemen, to do his bidding. Nothing else. And when we decide otherwise, we find chaos on our hands. From the moment that Elijah arrives on the stage... The first message that he has for his culture is Yahweh is in charge. Not not, not Baal. Not Buddha. Not Allah. Not you. Not me. Yahweh. Gosh. Secondly, the, the, the Another thing that I think this event says about God is that his saving plans go far beyond Israel. That is, his power extends <clears throat> even out into the wilderness. A place where there's nothing that lives out there. It's all death out in the wilderness. But clearly, God does not intend his influence to be restricted to Israel. He, he is not a regional God. So when the water dries up in the brook, he sends Elijah off to Zarephath in Sidon. By the way, that's where Jezebel is from. It's almost as if God is mocking Jezebel and her her opposition to him. <clears throat> but um, there, there's a couple of things that are important about that, that, that you need to see about God sending him out to the wilderness and then over to the home of the Gentiles. Let me point them out. First of all, guys, rain is not the only thing that God withholds. Sending Elijah out of the land of Israel might appear to be a tactical retreat, but it is not that. It is something far different. It is an act of judgment on Israel for God to remove Elijah from the scene. With Elijah gone, so is God's word gone. So, to a famine of bread, God now adds a famine of his word. Folks, there is no sure sign of God's displeasure with a nation than his 
withholding opportunities to hear his word preached. Israel um, looks on other gods um, with delight. And so God says, all right, then I'm going to take the word that was designed to benefit you. And I'm going to take it someplace else. By the way, Jesus uses this very event. This very event in Luke chapter 4. You remember that? And the people who heard him say it were furious. And they were furious because they knew what he was saying. They were furious because Elijah goes to a Gentile widow. And Jesus says, you know, there, there are a lot of widows in Israel when God sent Elijah to Zarephath. That's Luke chapter 4, verse 24. Do you know what Jesus is saying? And you know what that audience is so mad about, ladies and gentlemen? This is not about a widow being fed. It's about judgment on Israel. You spurn my word, then I'll send it elsewhere. Guys, um, have you ever wondered why... Why there are so many churches that have abandoned the gospel. Whole denominations. Whole denominations, ladies and gentlemen. We are now being, we are now being visited. This country is being visited by missionaries sent from Africa, from Korea. Because we have whole denominations abandoning the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, do you think, do you know why that's happening? Do you you think that's because the gospel has lost its punch? No, ladies and gentlemen. It's a stroke of God's displeasure. One of the surest signs of his displeasure is to to lessen or perhaps remove altogether opportunities for us to hear a thus saith the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not about feeding a widow. It's about God saying that my word is not to be reserved for one place that doesn't value it or appreciate it. And so... So I'll take it elsewhere. Ladies and gentlemen, do you realize where the church of Jesus Christ is growing the greatest today? Africa, China, India, South America. Do you know who is about to shrivel up and blow away. The church in America. Do you think that's because the gospel is no longer powerful? No, ladies and gentlemen. Taking Elijah out of Israel is a stroke of judgment on Israel. 
making it harder to hear the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. It's not because the gospel has lost anything. It's because it's a stroke of judgment on America. I gotta do one more thing and I've got eight minutes to do it in, so let me. <clears throat> There's a third message from this story. And the third message has to do with death. And um, the, the point that God makes through this story for this culture through Elijah is this, that death is no boundary. Here's what I mean. Everywhere Elijah goes, life breaks out. That is, since he is the the bearer of the word of the life-giving God, everywhere he goes, life breaks out. He goes out into the wilderness where no life exists, and he flourishes because God sends ravens in a brook. He goes to Zarephath, and people are starving because of the drought. But him, but Elijah and the widow and her family... They do fine. But then there is one very large significant test of, of, of this, of this prophet. And it comes when her son dies. And in verse 18, the widow blames Elijah and, and, and thus blames God. She says, um, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance? And to cause the death of my son. Do you see what she says, guys? First of all, she blames Elijah. And of course, because he's God's representative, she blames God. God is challenged. Um, he He can take life to the wilderness. But can he give life in the land of the Gentiles? Um, is death going to be a boundary for this God? Can, can he cross the boundary even of death and bring life? And then notice in verse 18, she not only blames Elijah, she blames herself. Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance? Have you come to say that this is the consequence of my sin? Have you come to say that that sin's final punishment is death? Can you bring life even in the face of sin? Is sin some kind of impenetrable barrier for Yahweh? And this story gives you an answer, folks. Yahweh brings life to the home of a Gentile widow the quintessential outsider, in spite of her sin. Folks, death was supposed to defile. I mean, you're not supposed to touch death, according to Numbers chapter 18. Death defiles, and yet, God, through his prophet Elijah, comes in contact with death. And instead of the death defiling him, Death is conquered and life is restored. Guys, this is the God of Jesus Christ. 
This is, this is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will our God enter the wilderness for us? He already has. In Jesus Christ. Will, will he come into the territory of the damned for us? He already has. In Jesus Christ. Will he cross the boundary between life and death for us? He already has. In Jesus Christ. Will he deal with our sin? He already has. In Jesus Christ. Guys, the first thing that our culture needs to hear about Yahweh is that he is a boundary-busting God. Infinite, boundless. He never retreats. He never suffers a setback. Drought is his agent. Death is his servant. And that God has made a way by which people who are separated from him by their sin can be restored to him. All in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That, ladies and gentlemen, is thus Seth the Lord. Our Father, I pray that you will um, ignite your people, that we will no longer um, wilt in the assaults of a, a culture gone mad, but that as best we know how, as clearly and as sweetly and as lovingly as we can to stand against the tide of evil that threatens to overtake us, to stand before it and say, Thus saith the Lord. The only hope that any of us have and anybody inside or outside the church of Jesus Christ is that message that you have entrusted to the church about the one that you sent to save sinful folk, to save the marginalized, to save the the quintessential outsiders like us, the people who have no claim, no right, no merit. All we bring is our sin. Will you, can you deal with our sin You have in Christ. Might that great work become the great shelter of our souls. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.